Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to Stoma for Life, the bowel cancer awareness and life as an ostomate radio show and podcast. Your host, Rafaela, is here to debunk myths, clear up misconceptions, and help you approach the subject that so many people are afraid to talk about in a positive manner. Listen in for a new perspective. Stoma for Life on UK Health Radio. A very warm welcome to today's show here on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Today I would like to share a book that I'm currently reading. It was written by Dale Carnegie in the early 50s and is titled How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Now, this is timeless advice regardless of when it was written. The book explains the cause of worry and why it's important to take control of it. It gives multiple methods for eliminating worry from your life. Worry comes in all shapes and sizes and influences your work, your family life, relationships and health. The list is actually endless. Worry can lead to many health conditions, be it physical or mental. Today's guest can certainly relate to worry on a health level. She was diagnosed with FAP in 2016. FAP is a genetic condition and both her brothers and dad have it too. How does one deal with worry on such a level? Here to talk about her journey since her life-changing surgery is Christy Bartlett, a successful business owner that has just moved to Australia from South Africa with her husband. She's living her best life without a colon. We are united by our South African background, a mutual friend, and being ostomates wanting to raise awareness on the subject. All the way from Adelaide, Australia, welcome to the show, Christly. Thank you so much for having me, and hello to your listeners. Yes, it's an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I read your story and I was totally amazed by it. And I actually want to invite you to share your story and I know AFP is an acronym for a condition so mm. perhaps you can you can share that with our listeners. Sure so there's FAP and then there's AFAP so uh, you know same sort of APC uh, gene but you know varying degrees of the condition so the one that I have is FAP which is familial abdominal I always get the middle word wrong abdominus polyposis um, and essentially what happens is that your colon grows hundreds and sometimes even thousands of polyps um, from starting from quite a young age. By the age, the average life expectancy for the condition is age 39, and it affects about one in 7,000. It is quite a rare condition, and obviously I had no idea that I actually had the condition. I, much like you, had no symptoms of you know anything that was really very scary in the gut um, area. Um, but my younger brother, who is now 32, um, had a very bad case of IBS to the point where he couldn't go to work. And they decided to scope him. And when my mom told me that he had this condition and that it affected his colon, at that stage, I was completely ignorant. I didn't know 
anything whatsoever and he was going in for emergency surgery and I just thought well that's fine he's going to be good like no issues and soon enough the Wits genetic counseling center had latched onto our family and they wanted to interview me and um, you know get a better understanding of the family history and that's when I started to realize that you know they actually thought that I could also have this condition that it wasn't just my brother and they spoke to me and asked me if I wanted to undergo um, testing and I asked them, well, what's the symptoms? And they, you know, they spoke about um, gut health and yeah, basically just things to do with, you know, bowel movements. And I said, no, I have none of that. Like I'm 100% fine. And they still encouraged me to do the scope and myself, my dad and my younger brother, who was about 14 at the time, all went and we all came out positive you know, with FAP. When they initially told me, I just was in utter shock. I couldn't believe it because even though he said that it didn't look as bad as what he'd seen in my brother, it didn't give me, it was a very small consolation prize. And I chose to basically go into denial. I was a young, you know, girl with her whole life ahead of her. And I really just couldn't deal with that at that stage. And um, watching my brother, Donald Gordon, he was suffering incredibly. He was very young and um, he actually landed up having a nurse at home. And I was completely freaked out by the whole idea of it. But I knew that it was something that I would have to deal with, you know, whether it was then or in 10 to 15 years. So even though I chose to put my head down and ignore it for a large part, I was also researching very quietly in the background to figure out what were my options and I was working with specialists and I was being scoped and I felt that I was very lucky to have the opportunity to know about something and to be able to you know use that information but as you spoke about worry you know it's it's an incredibly difficult time in one's life because when you know I had to change my whole life my whole lifestyle everything about me had to change and I felt different I always felt like I had imposter syndrome you know just trying to act like I was like everybody else when I knew that like I wasn't, you know, and that I did have a very serious condition. So, yeah, I think at the end I started almost lying to myself and being a little bit inauthentic, you know, because I just wanted this thing to go away. But in the end, I knew that I was going to have to face it head on eventually. What did the doctors actually say? What would the prognosis be? How would you proceed? Because you said you had no symptoms. What did they advise you to do? Well... I was going for my annual scopes and at every scope they were saying to me, you need to have a colectomy. And it was just, you know, the anxiety that you get when you walk into a scope is like, you know what it's like. You just can't, you can't imagine it. Um, you lie amongst people and you just hear the doctor telling them that they're fine and you wish that that was you. But mm. in the end, every single time the pressure was on to actually get the op done. Um, and that continued for a number of years I did find a specialist who was a little bit more agile and was open to actually working with me and just doing scopes up until a point where we couldn't sustain it anymore. But yeah, I mean, he even looked at me and he just said, there's nothing I can really do for you. I'm so sorry. And, you know, just the way that he looked at me, like took everything out of me to not break down. But um, yeah, I think after two years of being with him, I knew that it was time. I just couldn't take it anymore. You know, like, you know, I look at your case and it was incredibly reckless of me to, you know, continue living this life because I would hear about people that would go, oh my word, they scoped my friend and she had one polyp. And I'm out here thinking, well, I actually have like 40 or 50, you know. Um, so 
cancer is very prevalent amongst young and old. And I think if you've got the knowledge, you know, and the resources, then you need to follow through. And look, I mean, knowledge is power and uh, you are able to make an evaluated decision, obviously. And I mm. mean, having seen your brother go through this, um, anybody else in your family, has has anything come up with any of them as well? My dad landed up also having the surgery um, a few years later. He had the surgery, however, he didn't have a bag because they kept the rectum and they managed to do mm-hmm. a direct connection to the to the rectum, um, which was successful. And my younger brother underwent the operation in the same year as my older brother, purely preventative, um, as just a 14-year-old. He did undergo the surgery. He was a um, he was from my dad's second marriage. And I think that's also quite interesting because this gene is actually a 50-50 gene. So the, the odds that all three of us have it is incredibly rare. You don't often see that. It's it's like flipping a coin essentially, and unfortunately, we all landed on heads. So yeah. So you, as I understand now, you're the last one in the family to have undergone this surgery. Yes. So I made a lot of um, lifestyle changes at the time of receiving the diagnosis, mm-hmm. and I pretty much just went into full tilt health mode for the better part of, I don't know, maybe four years, and it it did make a difference. You know, I think genetics is obviously plays a massive role but because of what they were seeing when they were scoping me there was actually no growth of polyps there was no real movement um everything just kind of stayed the same year in and year out which is incredible like even the doctors were amazed by it if you talk about changing your lifestyle making um adaptations Mm -hmm. to your life what would that mean i mean what did you actually do Mm So I went on a lot of um, a bit of a Google research spree, but essentially what it came down to for me was combating inflammation, because obviously when you do have, um, you know, issues in the bowel, you are suffering with gut health and inflammation in the, in the gut. So I was looking at a very, you know, like, what would the word be, a, you know, turmeric powders, mm-hmm. um, a whole bunch of supplements to basically eliminate some of the, you know, the inflammation markers and stuff that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with food, so I was very into meat at the time, and I still wouldn't recommend it for everybody. But in my research, I found that it would take the body quite a few days, the colon, quite a few days to break down meat. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, what if I gave my colon a bit of a rest and I focused more on vegetables? So I did that. Like more plant Exactly, yeah. I cut out refined sugars. Mm-hmm. I focused on stress management because obviously stress is a big trigger. Um, sleep. And then the last thing that I did was exercise. So as you know, exercise, you know, kind of creates like lactic acid in the body. It makes it very uncomfortable for polyps to grow. So I kind of worked out that 30 minutes of exercise a day would make quite a big difference. Mm-hmm. And from there, I just went full on. Um, and by the end, it wasn't 30 minutes of exercise a day. It was like one to two hours a day. But it was definitely making a big difference. I'm sure also for your mental health, because I mean that, as I said, you know, worry, you know, it's it's a mental health issue that sort of, it lingers, it's always in the back of your head. So I'm sure mm. keeping busy in that instance um, helped you a lot. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think keeping busy and yeah, I mean, you know, focusing on the positives of a negative situation. If I did not, diagnosed with this condition I don't think I would be half the person that I am today you know I think 
they also say that obviously we'll talk about this, but you know, having this opportunity, like a spiritual journey in a sense, you learn so much about yourself. And I, I can honestly tell you to anybody out there that's going to have the op, you're not going to lie down and accept defeat. You're going to absolutely fight and embrace life and work to get that quality of life back, you know, and that's what actually makes the whole journey so rewarding. But it's a lot of work, self-work. Mm. You know, it doesn't mm. just fall from the sky. You really have to work at it. That's what we are here to actually share our story and tell people that it is possible. So Definitely. we are actually, or I see you actually also as a an advocate for this. Yeah. I mean, I was meant to have the reversal six months after my op, and I'm still here with the snowman. I think that speaks volumes about a stroma really you know as a as a younger person mm -hmm. um, that's still very active you yeah. can live your life we're going to have a short commercial break and we'll be back talking about the surgery UK Health Radio the station that makes you feel good station that makes you feel good welcome back to stoma for life i'm delighted to be chatting to christy bartlett from adelaide australia who is sharing her fap journey so you've spoken about actually being diagnosed and what your life was like after diagnosis But I know there was a day when you actually made a decision to have surgery done that was advised by your surgeons. Perhaps you can take us through to that. So it was a little bit of a long-winded journey in terms of how we got here. Um, but once I met with the surgeon at Donald Gordon, um, her name is Nadine, I asked her to unpack what the surgery would look like for me. And it was decided that I would have a temporary stoma and then I would have a reversal. And when she started talking, I just blacked out and I actually landed up in on her, on her bed. And she was like, wow, I've never had that happen before. I was incredibly overwhelmed. You know, I think it's just this feeling of, okay, I've been defeated. And, you know, when you've been torturing yourself about something for so many years, it's such a very real moment in your life. Um, it's a turning. You know, to understand that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to know that this time has come and, to know what it looked like for other people and to wonder what it's going to look like for you. But anyway, she was really lovely. And then she suggested that I meet with a stoma nurse and I did. And she was also really lovely, but it didn't make it any easier because there was a long list of don't do this and don't do that. And it's going to be like this. And oh, it was just so overwhelming. I didn't sleep that night. And a few days later, I was sitting on the couch and I said to my husband, I can't have a stoma. I will I would literally rather die than have a stoma. I don't want one. And I'm, I just, I can't go with, through with the surgery. And I met with the genetic counseling center again, because I was trying to find loopholes to avoid a stoma. And I said, well, you know, what about fertility? Because I've heard that when you remove the rectum, you lose some of your fertility. And they started doing some studies and they confirmed that, yes, you know, there was a few studies that had shown that there was a reduced level of fertility if you've had your rectum removed and I went back to the doctor and I said well you know why can't you do the surgery like my dad had the surgery I don't want a bag mm -hmm. and she actually agreed and I was quite shocked that it was just that easy wow. um, 
Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. So I'm going to have the surgery, no bag, great. <laughs> I mean, this is a big lesson for all our listeners to learn to actually investigate and get multiple info. You know, there's multiple sources of information out there mm-hmm. and speak to your surgeon. I think that is the mo- that is the key thing to actually speak to them. And it has to resonate with you because, I mean, you're going through this. And I mean, I commend yes. you for actually having gone that way and finding out about it. Yes. And I must say that there are a lot of people out there that have conceived successfully with J pouches or, you know, having no rectum. So I don't want to say that it's, it's not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, however, at the time I was just looking for, well, you know, I'm already 34 when I'm ready to conceive, what's that going to look like for me? You know, are there going to be further odds against me? So, yeah. Absolutely. So, yes. So she was, um, she agreed with you and they decided to keep the rectum. Yes. Okay. So you can have a reversal whenever you actually, or if, when they think you're ready for it, or if you want one. Yeah, so they also said keeping the rectum in my case is high risk because it's not only the colon that grows polyps. Um, with FAP, you are more susceptible to polyps on the rectum. However, those are much easier to remove. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also more susceptible to polyps on the small intestine as well as in the stomach. Mm-hmm. So there are varying degrees of risk in each of those. But because I didn't have much on the rectum and I still don't, they felt that it was a pretty safe bet given my family history. I didn't, you know, our family didn't match up to, well, nobody died at 39. People Mm -hmm. were living, you know, my grandpa lived till 65. So we had to look at, we had to look at my, my past rather Mm -hmm. than just looking at the data. Um, And that's what I kept on saying to them. I don't want to see stats. Like I want to look at my family and, you know, what I think is best for me. And it was nice that I was heard and that I did have time to research and to build a case. Like you said, you you were able, you were given time to research. You were informed, and I think once you're informed, it's so much easier to get your head around it. It's not mystified. You actually know exactly yeah. what's going on. Okay, now you've you've had your surgery, or you are prepped for surgery. I mean, that must have been quite a daunting time as well, because I mean, it's mm. something, you know, you're going to, it's going to change your life forever. You know, it's it's something actually nobody else can see but you know it's mm. going to be gone. Exactly, yeah. You know it's a really big deal and there's nothing that, yeah, like that anyone can say to you, you know, it's your thing and you need to go through it and feel those emotions. For me, it, I was mourning the life that I had because I was so incredibly active mm-hmm. um, and I didn't feel that I would ever get back to that place. So, you know, the day before surgery, I was training like a maniac and I remember just going in and, you know, from that moment after surgery, you just know your life is different. But if you're driven and motivated enough to actually, you know, push on, you can still get back to that place. And I think I don't want to ever make the sound like an incredibly negative experience because it's not, you know, I really hate it when people look at us and go, oh, shame, because it's really not the case. Like everybody has their thing in life and this is ours. And um, yeah, I think we're lucky enough to have had preventative surgery Yes. Preventative surgery, life changing surgery. Life, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's actually a blessing that there are surgeries out there that can actually enable us to live like this, you know? It's I mean, it's just actually quite incredible. And I mean, in your case, you've got peace of mind because I'm sure you're going to get scope for the rest of your life mm-hmm. having this condition. And uh 
a few episodes ago, I had uh, Dan Drydock Shockley on the show. He suffered or he suffers from AFAP. And he also said, you know, it gives him peace of mind because he's on the radar, you know, and you said once you found out, you actually you can take action and you're more aware of it. The knowledge is power. And I think that is is, is a very key thing in in living your life. <laughs> yeah. And we were very lucky to, you know, have access to social media and networks and be able to reach out to people that are willing to chat to us yeah. and, you know, to provide us with the information that we need. Um, and I think that's where social media is such an incredibly valuable tool. However, it can also fear monger you. And, you know, there was a stage where I just said to my husband, everything on this FAP group is so terrible. And he was like, have you ever considered that everybody else is just out there living their lives? And the people that have got problems are on this group, you know, and when you, when you look at it like that, that's the truth. I'm no longer on that group. And mm-hmm. I think I had to remove myself from it just for my own like mental health. But I'm very happy to say that it, you know, touch wood hasn't gone badly and that mm-hmm. I'm not one of those statistics at this stage. I mean, what changes did you go through? I mean, obviously diet, obviously your training habits, everything changed, mm-hmm. but yeah. Can you, can you talk us through that? I mean, after surgery, what your life was like or has been like ever since then? Yeah. Well, I, firstly, I came out of surgery without a stoma um, and um, I got pretty sick three days later, and then I was rushed in for an emergency surgery because I had an stomach leak. Um, so I think it took the recovery process was much longer because of that. And then I was obviously also having to navigate the stoma that I never thought I was going to have. And one of the prerequisites to leave the hospital is that you need to know how to manage the bag. And at that stage, I could barely look at the bag. So, you know, it, it definitely was just, I think, in terms of the recovery, it was mentally and physically getting to grips with what had happened. And I think from there, it was just every single day walking. There was only two days, and there has only been about two days, that I haven't walked or done some or other form of physical activity, even if I felt like I really couldn't do it, like I forced myself to do it. I have worked really hard on my core because obviously you're more susceptible to hernias. Um, I have worked on my breathing, I have worked on strength, I have worked on diet, and I can honestly say that I probably eat more now than what I have ever eaten. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's so important. And when I was in hospital, I realized how sick I felt up until the point where I could start taking in nutrition. And it makes you realize how incredibly important um, food is. The correct food. Exactly. Yeah. Correct food. Now, I don't know Mm -hmm. how it was with you when you had your surgery, but I was actually, I was quite shocked that I had my surgery at the Bowel Institute here in London. Mm -hmm. And when I came out of surgery, the food that was offered to me was definitely not for a person that had had bowel surgery. I actually had a plant-based diet and they could only offer me Indian food plant-based food which had a lot of curry in and a lot of um corn so i was extremely i was i I was totally baffled you know i thought especially in in a ward like that that really only specializes in those type of surgeries that Mm. that your diet would basically be be pinpointed to your needs but it wasn't yeah i think we had it um they really aired on the side of extreme caution um so i was only allowed to be a broth for quite a few days 
then with my leak, I was obviously not allowed any food. Um, I got put onto TPN, which is the, you know, the food in a bag for a drip. Um, so it was a pretty slow progression for me. And when I could start eating, it was a cappuccino, some oats, a piece of toast. And it took me hours to get through any food. I was petrified. Um, they would put something in front of me and I would look like it's like a death sentence, you know. So, yeah. And you would chew and, but it's and interesting. Chew and chew for Yes, it. exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm always interested to see how every single place is different. And they also told me, don't drink water. You know, you're only allowed to drink this ileostomy drink that you need to make every day. And I was petrified of water. I was petrified of various foods. Yeah, I think it was definitely, a, you know, a list of what you couldn't eat more than what you could eat. Absolutely. And the list, yeah. I suppose, like you said in the beginning, everybody is unique and everybody will obviously react differently. But there are sort of guidelines to adhere to. I suppose you just have to, it's a trial and error thing. Exactly. You know, learning it's about by- introducing it slowly mm-hmm. and... um I worked with a nutritionist and that was very helpful. I went to her with really a handful of things that I was eating. And she said, well, what if you tried some greens? And, you know, what if you tried this? And slowly but surely we did it. And we looked at my body fat then and my body fat later. And, yeah, it made a big difference. But it does take time and you have to be patient with yourself. Absolutely patient. And well, you have to be willing to actually make those changes because, Unfortunately, I know of a lot of people that will rather, you know, not make changes at all. They just are stuck in their habit and in their way of life and will not change. So it is absolutely key to get your head around it and be willing to do the change and also be patient with yourself because, I mean, you're adapting to a whole new life mm-hmm. and not to be yeah, too hard definitely. on yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, to realize that it is a long journey, it's, it's, you know, it's taken me a year and almost a year and a half to get to just where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I still question whether I can eat certain foods and, oh, how do I feel now? And, you know, is this okay? And yeah. am I thirsty or am I dehydrated or is something wrong? You know, you, you have to be in tune with your body and you have to question things and, you know, keep up to date with your health and your nutrition and make sure that you are still maintaining that quality of life that you had before. It's very easy to sit back and say, oh, well, I can only eat this junk food. You know, um, my younger brother would say, oh, I have to eat McDonald's, you know. Um, but you don't. You can you can eat what, you know, what you used to eat. However, things might be in moderation. You can't eat a bag of nuts, you know. You can have a handful, which is actually what you should be having. So um, it is definitely just about um, monitoring and getting used to things. Now, your situation is extremely unique because it wasn't just you that was diagnosed with this, but uh, a lot of your family members. Now, having people that are dear to you, having gone through this, I'm sure has also been a great help because you can share with them. You don't have to reach out to, well, to the internet to find people that have gone through it. You've, You've got them right next to you in your life. Yeah. Yeah, my brother was amazing. He was at the hospital all the time. And I was very lucky because he knew the doctors personally and, well, not personally, but he had a good rapport with them. And when I was becoming very sick due to the leak, he was actually the one that was going up to the nurses that he knew and saying, administer medicine for her, make a plan. Because, you know, in general ward, you're pretty much like you need to kind of be independent at that point. And I was actually in nappies. I couldn't do anything. 
Mm-hmm. So um, he was there and he was very involved in making sure that I was okay. And, you know, when I got home, I'd say, oh, something's a bit weird with the bag. And he would check. And, yeah, like I think it's incredibly valuable to have somebody that, you know, has supported me like he has. And, yeah, to be able to chat to my dad and my younger brother who have also been through the surgery. So it has been a really great support. We will have to break again for a commercial break and uh, we'll be back shortly. And I would like to know all about your current life, what your life is like now, because I know you've immigrated to Australia. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. The station that makes you feel good. We are back on Stoma for Life with today's guest, Christy Bartlett. She has spoken about her life after surgery. And I actually do want to know, Christy, what does your life look like now living in Australia? Your move to Australia has only been recently. Just past mid last year, my husband and I started chatting about potentially immigrating um, for work reasons. And I was about to go have the surgery. So I was quite hesitant to have the surgery. I knew that there was going to be medical checks involved to get to Australia. And I didn't know exactly where my health was going to be at. I wasn't too sure would I be able to travel, what was going to be the implications for me long term. He spoke to somebody who was quite keen to employ him. And mid-September, a month and a half after my surgery, they had offered him the job. And just the thought of him going was really daunting. Um, At that stage, he was making my meals for me, doing my hydration drinks. You know, it was a major pillar of support for me. So um, I knew that he was going to have to move over uh, probably December, Jan. And we basically just started the waiting game. And he told me that I was going to, you know, need to pack up the house and get the pets ready to immigrate and sell the house and all those things. And at the time, it seemed a little bit daunting, but fast forward to December, Jan, and I was doing all those things and I was 100% capable of doing them. Um, And yeah, we did, we did everything with the support of his family and um, he moved over in January. I came to visit in March. At that stage, the operation was still a little bit fresh and I did struggle a bit um, over here. I was dealing with a lot of bag leaks on the trip mm-hmm. and I Googled the Stoma Association and they were two and a half kilometers from my house. And I was like, what are the odds of that? Wow. And I went, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. And I went in and they were so helpful. They gave me 50 free bags, um, you know, just really just gave me everything I needed, offered me advice on the medical process, said that they would never reject me for a stoma. Um, and I just felt really empowered and I felt like, you know, this is obviously meant to be. Yeah, went back home and then I moved over officially at the end of June mm-hmm. and um, our container arrived. We secured a new house and our pets have subsequently come over. And life is amazing now, you know, I still chat the ladies from the stoma association all the time they still help me out mm-hmm. um you know i still train i live my life i run my business back home and also work over here and i never consider myself to be you know on the back foot with anything in fact i often forget that i have a bag you know obviously there's those days where you can't ignore it but for the most part 
we're just living our lives and we're very happy. But isn't it incredible? I mean, okay, now you've had this incredible surgery and then your life completely gets turned upside down by your husband uh, getting a job opportunity. Mm. I suppose you having had the opportunity to then focus on something completely different also helped you in actually healing in that sense because you you could actually, all right, you had to focus on something else, but it actually gave you a, a mission or something to focus on, something completely different. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and we we always said that, you know, we thought last year was going to be one of the toughest years of our life. Mm-hmm. And we felt that, well, we hoped that this year would be, you know, one of the more rewarding years. And that is how it did work out in the end. You know, it, it wasn't, immigration is, is not for sissies, as you know. Yeah. But it is a very rewarding process. Um, it doesn't make it any easier to obviously leave everybody behind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we never left because we have negative feelings towards anything. It was just a better opportunity for us at this stage. Yeah. And it's been really exciting. And it's also kind of nice to have a, a bit of a, a blank slate, you know. And mm-hmm. um, I think back home, it was, oh, you know, you know, Christy had this big surgery. And mm-hmm. over here, it's like, well, there's a new girl, you know. And then mm-hmm. when I tell them my story, they're completely shocked. Um, and that's how I want it to be. I don't want people to ever feel sorry for me or anything like that. I want to be, you know, if I'm training, I want to be training with people of all calibers. I don't consider myself to be any less than anyone else. Yeah. And one can as an ostomate. Mm. That was to me, one of the biggest uh, revelations that you can actually carry on. Do have a, you do have to take a little bit of care, but you can actually Mm. pretty much do everything that you did before. And exactly. I find it incredible. I mean, I my, our listeners can't see you now, but I mean, I see this incredible, beautiful, healthy-looking woman, and one would never guess what you've been through. And I mean, that is the the thing of having a well. Here in the UK, it gets classified as a hidden disability. Yes, and that's what blows my mind. You know, I mean, I know it's different for everybody, so I can't necessarily say. You know, I think we are also very blessed. So yeah. yeah. So just tell me now, I mean, you've having moved from South Africa, obviously you were in the healthcare system there. Mm. What does the healthcare system look like in Australia? Here in the UK, regardless of where I would move in the UK, I'm, I'm on the NHS and I get my bag sent to yeah. me on a regular basis. I don't even have to worry. All they do is phone me up and say, what do you need? What? What can we send you? Do you feel like testing a new bag? Mm, Amazing. Pretty easy. So I don't know. Mm. What's it like in Australia? I am still on private medical only, which is is quite a challenge. Um, So I have to pay for everything. I even had to pay for majority of my scope when I arrived. So, yeah, I'm still paying cash for all my bags and products, which, as you know, costs quite a lot of money. But we do have another visa running, and hopefully if that visa comes through, then I will be made permanent resident, and then I will have access to the public medical system, uh, which is Medicare. Mm-hmm. And then I will absolutely be able to also receive products and um, take advantage of the perks. Mm-hmm. Every single time I order products, the ladies at the Soma Clinic feel terrible. They are always trying to slip me something and apologizing whenever I have to pay Um so, yeah, no one here pays, obviously, but um, in our case, we do. Okay, okay. But, I mean, that's a process where, you know, okay, I've got to go get through that now, and then at the end, you know, it'll it'll become a little easier if you are on their medical or health care. 
Yes, definitely. So, yeah. But yeah. Um, I always say, you know, it's we are only this good because of the healthcare that we're, we're actually receiving, of the quality mm-hmm. of bags we're getting, you know. I think that is absolute, that's an absolute blessing. And once you found that bag, um, actually last week I was phoned by my um, healthcare uh, provider and they said, Oh, would you like to test a new bag? And it was sent to me and okay, yes, of course I'll test a new bag, but I quickly found out, no, it, it wasn't my bag. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, you've got to find what, what works for you. Yeah. I went through every single brand and type and back home, they were actually getting quite frustrated because I was just changing my orders all the time. But I was like, this isn't just a one-size-fits-all thing. Like, you need to find out what works for you. Um, so, yeah, once you find it, though, like, I feel you almost have to stick to it because it's just it just changes your life, you know. I think people don't understand what it's like when you're dealing with bag leaks and stresses around, is the bag going to leak? So when you find that product that makes you confident, you just have to run with it. Absolutely, in every sense of the word, you know. It's... Uh... <laughs> Like I said, uh, the bags that were sent to me, I'm I'm definitely not going to take because it just didn't feel comfortable. And it's better just to stick with what you actually know and what actually is your best fit. Yes, definitely. So we almost come to the end of the show, but I would like to actually invite you to leave our listeners with something that uh, obviously in the last couple of years that perhaps have Yes, have been not just highlights, but also revelations, things that you would like to share about your life now that you perhaps didn't know before your surgery. Oh, yeah. It's such a tough one, you know. I think it's made me a lot more, I think it's made me a more well-rounded person having had the surgery. And, you know, it's not all about the physical looks of somebody there's a whole bunch of factors and you know often you can see somebody on the street and they just look they look like everybody else but you don't really know what's going on with them and I think those are the sort of things that we you know that this sort of surgery makes you realize I've also realized that it's not a death sentence like what I thought it was um, you can still live a very full life yes there are changes that you need to make but it's not the end of the world and it's also about your perception of the situation you know um I think if you're completely negative about it and shut off and yeah, just choosing to see all the bad things, then that's going to be what it's like for you. You know, when people say, Oh, I forgot that you had a bag. That's what I want them to say. I don't want to be defined by a bag. I want to be defined for the person that I am. And um, yeah, I think, you know, when you take away that physical thing of, uh, you know, I've got an appendage stuck to my body and you just look at the person like it it just makes life so much more fulfilling. Um, and it also just gives you a better sense of compassion for others. Um, so I would definitely say that it's it's unlocked a lot of different sides of me, a lot more empathy, a lot more yeah, understanding, positivity. It's I've really had to push beyond what I could ever imagine, you know, to break through this journey and to really embrace it. And yeah, I never ever consider myself to be, you know, man down or any less than anybody else. And I think that's exactly where I wanted to be in life. And not every single day is perfect. There are still tough days, but everybody has tough days. And like I said, we're so lucky to know that we have this and that we can actually treat and do something about it. And I would really encourage people to, you know, take charge of their gut health, like, don't just think that, oh, you know, I don't have those symptoms. Like, 
get to grips with things. Colon cancer is extremely prevalent, whether you're young or old. There's people here that are 25 that are dealing with stage four cancer. You know, you were lucky that you found yours early enough. Like people are not all in that same boat. And I think it's just terrible to me how people pity me, but they don't even know their own health status. Yeah. You know, I spoke to my surgeon a couple of weeks ago when I went for my um, annual checkup and he actually, he said that mm. Australia has actually, actually lowered the age of people having, being scoped. I think at 40, they actually offer it to the people already. Here in the UK, you get tested or you get your home testing kit at I think from the age of 60, but they're also lowering that from the age of 54. Mm. As far as I know, Australia has lowered it even to 40 because people are much younger now. Yeah, there's a lot of it going around here. There's a lot of talk of it. You know, there's there's quite a well-known younger girl who was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at 25, and she's really taken charge and, you know, changed the dialogue around this. Um, and gotten a whole group of people together that, you know, have provided a lot more education and insight into this. And I think they're taking it very seriously at this stage, which is really, really good to see. It's it's up to us who are living this life to actually raise awareness and share our story and actually speak about it, tell people about it and make them aware about it. Because bowel cancer is called the silent killer because only once you really once it really actually hits you it could be mm. it could be quite late but there are certain signs prior to that and if you are listening to your inner voice and are in tune with your body you can actually pinpoint those signs and you must just be aware of them because like you said a lot of people don't even know and i think that's what what we are here for just to raise that awareness Yes, exactly. I think a lot of people are, you know, thinking about breast cancer when they go in for their gynecological checks and ovarian cancer, but you're not really thinking about like how much of your health comes from your gut. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, you're having irregular bowel movements. You need to understand that those things aren't always normal. Um, And it's definitely worth getting a scope, especially in a country where they're offering you access to that and easy access to it. You should definitely, you know, take it up. And, um, you know, those people are all professionals. It's done in a very humane way. And uh, because mm. a lot of people, I mean, that obviously is nobody's first choice of examination, but it's only mm. that is the only way to actually see what's going on. And uh, we are both living testaments that those those scopes actually save lives. Yeah. And it's a good cleanse at the end of the day. So <laughs> I always say to people that are going, well, you can have a great cleanse. You're going to feel like a million bucks in a few days. So just go with it. Absolutely clean slate, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've learned so much about this. Um, I can take away your positivity on the subject. I commend you for what you've gone through and the way you've come through on the other side. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity. All the best. And um, yes, thank you so much. Bye.